You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. There is no place I'd rather be than with you at 1130. Because, you know, some people think that 10 o'clock is too early and 1 p.m. is too late. But this is like the Goldilocks service. It's just right. So uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I took my family to Lion Country Safari, if you've been there. And uh, tons of fun. And so you know how it is. You, if you've been there, you, know, you, gotta, you're, you stay in your car and then you drive around and kind of do your thing. And so there was this moment where, and you know, Lion Country Safari, one of the things that happens is that there can be a moment where one of the animals is crossing the, the road. And so everybody has to stop while the animal is crossing. And so we were, we were stopped. And then my daughter, Livy, she's nine now. She was about six at the time. But she, she, dad, yeah. And she, she points, she's like, what, what's going on there? Because uh, there was this, this, as we were stopped, there was this ma- uh, male uh, wildebeest that, and I'm even trying to find the words here, he, shall we say, mounted the female wildebeest. And she's like, Dad, what are they doing? And, uh, and, I, and I'm like, uh, yeah, great question. Um, you know, uh, you should ask your mom that. And, uh, and my son, Xander, uh, who was maybe eight at the time, he says, Livy, it's obvious. She's giving him a piggyback ride. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. Kid, you're getting a raise in your allowance. And uh, now, now listen, now, and, I, and I realize that every parent has to have that conversation with their kids. I just didn't think in our SUV in front of two wildebeests at Lion Country Safari, that was not the forum that I was thinking, right? And so today we're going to have kind of the talk in some ways about what the Bible has to say about uh, romance and sex and intimacy within the context of marriage and what it should mean for us as Christians. Now, just to tell you right now up front, like, I don't want you to worry. I'm not bringing up any charts. I'm not showing you where the parts fit together. If you're unsure about that, I'm just going to encourage you to watch the Discovery Channel. I'm sure there's some special happening this week about the mating rituals of aardvarks, and you can figure all that out. But what we're going to talk about is the, the idea of, uh, of sex is, is such an important thing. It's something that couples, uh, challenges that couples face because of the big three, and listen, I've been pastoring for more than two decades now, and I can tell you, most couples that come in, everything falls into one of three buckets. It's either money, communication, or sex. And if you're a guy, you heard like something, something, sex. And then you, what, what, what's the guy? This man is anointed. What is he saying? And uh, now, and the thing, the reality is that this is a topic that's rarely spoken about at church. In fact, I remember the first time I spoke on this topic at Calvary, uh, a woman emailed me saying that pastors shouldn't talk about sex. You should just tell people to trust God. And, uh, and I said, so what topics do you think I should talk about? And so she came back and she responded and gave me a list. I said, well, what if I just told people to trust God with those topics too? Maybe we should talk about everything the Bible talks about. And uh, she never wrote back. And uh, I like to think it was because she realized that the wisdom that I was sharing 
just answered every question, but that's not what it is. She didn't realize her, her question was foolish. That's not the way it works. Foolish people are always the last to know that they're foolish. And so, but in church, sex is a topic that's rarely talked about, and it's a shame. And, and what happens is, and this is, the, I think, the bigger shame, is that what we do is, because it never gets talked about in church, we end up going to the culture to answer our questions. And there is no worse mentor on the, as far as this topic than uh, going to our culture to talk about sex or romance or intimacy. I mean, that's like talking to someone who has been bankrupted several times and sitting with them saying, I would love your best financial advice. Like, you don't want anything from that guy. Right? The guy has no idea what he's doing. And that's what, so now that's not all we're going to talk about, but at least the first part of our message, that's going to be part of our conversation because that's answering some of the question that was being, that the church that we're looking at had written to the Apostle Paul about. But we started this series several weeks ago now called The Beautiful Mess. It's a study of a book in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to these, this group of people that were living in the city of Corinth. Corinth is a city in southern Greece, if you're not aware. And there in, there in Corinth, there's a woman by the name of Chloe. Chloe and her family went to the church at Corinth, but she knew the Apostle Paul because Paul had planted that church, spent a couple of years there, and then turned it over to his local leaders, and then he moved on and started planting other churches. But Chloe writes Paul a letter and says, this church is totally out of control. And by the way, she was understating what was going on. I mean, it was a mess. They, there was division. There was infighting. There was people getting drunk while taking communion. People were suing each other. And some of you are like, oh, that's like Thanksgiving at my house. And uh, like almost all those things happened. And, uh, but it was a mess. So Paul writes them this letter telling them that a divided world needs a united church. And the, the way that you become a united church is everyone having what he calls the mind of Christ. And that means that we think about things the way Jesus thinks about things, knowing what God wants us to do and speaking in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. Now, in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting all of the problems that are happening in this church. And then he opens chapter 7, and this is where kind of the the door hinge of the book is. The first six chapters are all the problems, and then from chapter 7 on, he says, now about the things you wrote me about. There were questions that the Corinthian church had to Paul about what do we do in these situations. And so the rest of the book is really him just answering the questions that they have about different areas of life. What I do find very interesting is that Paul put marriage first in all the other questions. And and there's a reason for that, I think. And that is because your life could be a complete mess right now. But if your marriage is strong, people ask you how you're doing. You're like, yeah, I'm doing some stuff, but life is good. And conversely, if everything in your life is going great, and yet your marriage is struggling, you think life stinks because you can't enjoy any of it. Because if your marriage isn't good, the rest of your life isn't good. And so we're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about singleness and what that means. It's a total misconception. And the bottom line is this, is that no matter what state you find yourself in, our best opportunity for joy Our best opportunity for purpose in life is to honor God in whatever state that we're in. So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Here's what we read. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let 
the husband render to his wife the infection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to talk about when it comes to relationships today. But the first issue is this, is that marriage brings joy when it's not about me. Okay? Now, the challenge that we have is, is that most of us get married because we think that's what's going to make us happy. And the challenge is, if I decide to make marriage about me being happy, I will end up being miserable, and so will you. Because marriage is an institution that was not created to make us happy. It's an institution that was created to make us holy, and yet it's in not forcing the relationship to be about me or about you or about us is where all the joy in marriage is found. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Now, Paul starts answering these questions and he answers the first one about marriage and relationships because some were saying it's better not to get married. In fact, because there was so much immorality in the city of Corinth at that time, he was saying, not only is it not better to get married, even couples that are married shouldn't have any physical contact with each other because there's just so much immorality in the, the culture. But, and so when Paul says, listen, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, understand that he's not talking about shaking a woman's hand or giving a woman a high five, all right? That touch a woman is a Jewish euphemism for sex, and Paul is saying that it's not good for unmarried Christians to be engaging in sex. And he says, but because there is so much sexual immorality, Christians should get married to other Christians. So he tells the couples that, look, if you have strong sexual desire, the healthiest thing you can do is find somebody else who loves Jesus and get married to them. And if you're married... He's saying, don't make the marriage about you, but instead make it about, and this is really the key, and this I I believe is one of the greatest secrets to marriage, and that is, if you will make your marriage about the other person's joy, I'm telling you, that sounds counterintuitive, but that is where all the joy is found, is when you decide this marriage is not about me, and your spouse says this marriage is not about me, that marriage is, it's going to be good, and it's going to be really good. And what Paul says is that there is a responsibility that husbands and wives have to each other when it comes to uh, intimacy. And this is why couples need to understand each other's desires. And so, uh, you know, now over the years, I have talked to, I mean, thousands of people on the subject of relationships and marriage and helped a lot of couples over the years and, you know, in various stages or whatever. But whenever I hear a wife say, you know, I know what he wants. He just wants sex all the time. And I mean, now, and this is what I'll say to that wife at the time. I say, can I say the same thing you just said to me, but can I just present it in a different way? Okay. Now, here's what I would say to what you just said. None of you find that very frustrating, but the reality is, isn't it a good thing that your, hus- that your husband finds you irresistible? and wants to be with you as much as possible. I mean, would you rather the opposite, where he thinks that having sex with you is the physical equivalent to eating cauliflower? (laughs) Because we all know cauliflower is of the devil. And so, and so, right? But, 
But you, no, you don't want that. Why? Because there is something innate in all of us to feel desirable. It's part of how God wired us. But you've got to talk about it. It's like what happened at my house on New Year's Eve a few years ago. So this is from 2016 going into 2017. Uh, we, were, we do this thing. We have dinner together as, our, as a family. And then we talk about what our favorite moment of the year was. And we'll talk about all different things. It's a, it's a wonderful conversation. It's a great tradition we have in our family. And so, when, you know, so this is a few years ago. My son is maybe five at the time, and five and a half. And Xander says, wow, 2016 is never coming back again. And I'm never going to be this age again. And he, he starts to cry. Well, my daughter Livy, who's four at the time, she says, Xander, it's okay. Just hold it in. Don't let it out. It'll make you feel better. And I'm like, Livy, that's horrible advice. That's not, him holding it in is not going to make him feel better. And she says, well, him holding it in will make me feel better. And, uh, and I'm like, so uh, anyway, she, Livy subscribes to like the Elsa, Elsa's parents philosophy, you know, conceal, don't feel. But sometimes you got to let it go. That's, that's how it is. So, but you can't hold it in. You've got to talk about what your desires are. Now, Ladies, and this is not new information, right? That is, men generally have a higher sex drive. But you, the thing you have to understand, and this is the thing that you don't realize, or, or some people don't realize, is that a husband having sex with his wife is how he feels loved and experiences an emotional connection to you. And I have talked to, I mean, thousands of husbands over the years, right? And here's the thing, generally speaking, that men want from their spouse. You may want to write it down. Husbands want more sex, all right? Now, I know this is blowing your mind, right? But listen, because this is such a delicate topic, most couples don't talk about their desires. And this is why one of the common themes in broken marriages is a lack of intimacy. Now, let me read you this passage from Proverbs chapter five. It gets quoted every once in a while around here, but let me, let me look at, I want you to look at it from the position that we don't really talk about it from this angle, but I want to talk about it. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving uh, deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. I want you to notice what lovemaking does. It causes a husband to be enraptured, literally intoxicated or captivated by his wife's love. And listen, that is true physically, but it's also true chemically. Sex releases dopamine, which is the happy hormone of, you, of the brain. It's, it's the same hormone that's released when a drug addict shoots up heroin, which is what creates the addiction. So when a faithfully married couple have a free and frequent sex life, they are literally bonding themselves together, spiritually, physically, and chemically by God's design. And listen, there's all kinds of benefits to this. One Canadian research journal, uh, wrote, and you can search this on Google if you want, that sex can cure hiccups. So if your wife shows up at home with hiccups, a loving husband says, honey, I have the cure. So, so there's somebody clapping whose wife gets hiccups all the time. I don't know where that came from, but he's like, pastor, you just set me free. So, all right. So, let me know how it goes. So, now, but this is why couples, you've got to fight for time together. And I know that life is busy. And let me tell you, I, I forgot to say this in the first service. So, they're going to be all messed up because of this. But, 
you guys are going to be, this is why the services progressively get better. Like this service at one o'clock is going to be fantastic. So even if you walk away, like it wasn't that good by one, it's going to be great. So, but you've got to just, um, you've got to be proactive in maintaining this connection together. And you say, well, we're just so busy and whatnot. Let me tell you something. Even if you have to schedule it, and I know, and I hear people, I tell, I've said this all the time. We do couples retreats. And by the way, we have a marriage retreat that's happening in September. All the stuff is out there. I don't know how many spots are left, but it's not a ton. If you're married and you plan to be married still in September, you need to sign up. Okay. So there's the commercial. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. But even if you have to schedule it, and I hear people, and I've said this at retreats over the years, and they'll say, that's so, that's so unromantic is scheduling sex. And it's like, is it like, is your birthday a bummer? Cause it's on the same day every year. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Like, do you wake up? Like, I wish it was so random. I wish I would just wake up and you know, my kids would be like, guess what? What? It's your birthday for real. No, it doesn't change it at all that it's scheduled, right? Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday in November and you're still going to eat way more turkey than you should. Right? And so scheduling something does not make it bad or unromantic. In fact, it can make it just as romantic as you know you're leading up to it. Right? We're on for seven, right? Yeah, as long as we get this house clean. <laughs> well, you can call me Mr. Clean because this thing is going to, we'll be ready, we'll be ready hours before that. And so, anyway, so once again, ladies, I just hooked you up. All right? You could have your entire house clean in like 45 minutes if you just schedule something out like two hours from now. Well, not from now. You're still in church, but have lunch. <laughs> let it digest because you probably should wait 20 minutes after you eat. At least that's what I read. So, okay, I got to move on now because it's not the stuff that I write that gets me in trouble. It's all this extra, as I like to refer to it, freestyle comments that get me in trouble. All right? So, so that's why in verse 5, uh, Paul says that husbands and wives shouldn't deprive each other. Now, let me just say something. If you have a headache every day for six months, like, you got to go, so- go see somebody. And, like, you got to get some kind of scan going on because and it's just, there's a, it reminds me of the story of this guy who he got home first. His wife walked in the door, and when she got home, he handed her two aspirin. And she said, what's this for? He said, for your headache. She says, I don't have a headache. He says, gotcha. So... <laughs> Anyway, his, this, is, this is more material for you to use later. I'm just helping people. That's all I do. I'm just helping people out. So now the thing is, now here's the point. When he says, hey, wife, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your husband. Hey, husband, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your wife. This is never meant to be used as a weapon. And by the way, the moment that we try to leverage those verses for our purposes, we are already in violation of them. We acknowledge these verses to guide our own behavior in our marriage, never to force our spouse. And the moment that we do, we start hurting the relationship. And then he gives this one exception in, at the end of verse 5 when he says, hey, if you want to abstain from sex for a season, do it for the purpose of prayer and fasting. And what does that mean? And that is that if there is something going on that you feel like we've got to just cut everything out, focus on God, prayer and fasting, that's it. He says, hey, that's fine if it's for that purpose of prayer and fasting. Well, so how long should we abstain for? Well, how long can you go without eating? So maybe a day or two 
or three? Well, you know, some people fast for weeks. Yeah, but how many actually do? And so the reality is, is that if you say, hey, we're not going to be physical, then fast. And the ready that, the time, whenever it is that you're ready to start eating sandwiches again, uh, then it's, it's, it's a reminder that you're now ready to re-enter the embrace of your spouse. And so the bottom line, listen, the vehicle for healthy sex and healthy intimacy that unites couples is found in marriage. It's found in the marriage covenant. Everything else is a cheap imitation that will ultimately hurt you. And Paul goes on in verse six, and look at what he says when he starts talking to those who are single. He says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them that they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you pause there and give me your attention. Uh, the, the, The next thing is, is that marriage is not required for you to be complete. And that's one of the things that Paul is trying to say to us is, because one of the things that you have to realize, now Paul at this time was single. But what we also know is that Paul, before becoming a Christian, he was a Jewish leader. He was in a elite group that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were essentially the Supreme Court of Israel. These were the experts in the Jewish law. And so what happens is Paul was a member of that. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. And so one of two scholars pretty much universally agree that one of two things happened in Paul's life, that either A, his spouse passed away, or, or B, after he, became, he left Judaism and had this encounter with Jesus and became a Christian, his wife left him. And it would seem that that might be the case because of what he's going to talk about in the next section of verses that we're going to look at in a couple of minutes. But what I want to talk about is, and this is, I think, the thing that's important is we have this idea in our culture that getting married is somehow going to complete us. And I believe it's one of the things that just culturally has been taught and has kind of permeated us to where now we think that that's what's going to happen. And and I'm telling you, the belief uh, uh, that, oh, when I get married, that's what's really going to somehow, you know, um, we just, we just believe this, this thing that, you know, marriage is going to make me whole and all that, that is going, that damages relationships way more than anything. And we see this everywhere in culture. We see this in movies. In fact, probably the most famous movie. Well, let me just have you watch it. We live in a cynical world, a cynical world. And we work in a business of tough competitors. You complete me. And I just had shut up. Just shut up. Just shut up, Tom, please. No, and I listen, Jerry Maguire is a great movie, but the sentiment is beautiful, but it's all wrong. And uh, allow me to explain. Listen, this whole thing of you complete me is so toxic in relationships and is really contrary to what the Bible teaches us. And, and because what the, what the Bible is teaching us about singleness and about marriage is so, so much wiser and, and so much healthier 
in, in your life. And let me explain why. Let me kind of take a running start to this. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, we see the very first marriage take place. And then here's the commentary that we get. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 19. Paul quotes this in the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that two people become one flesh. He doesn't say that two halves become a whole. Now, why is this important? Because when a person believes that they are incomplete and that marriage is going to complete them, it starts putting a pressure on the marriage that marriage was never meant to bear. And so when your spouse then says, well, I don't feel complete and I got married because I thought you were going to complete me, but now I don't feel complete. Now it's your fault. And so you start leaning on them a little bit harder, hoping that they'll make you complete. But when they do, they never do because it can't. It's this illusion that culture has created. Great marriages involve two complete people becoming one. Anything less is a fraction. Did you like fractions in school? No, so don't marry one, okay? It's just, it's, it's, it's like there's a place to go to be complete, but it's not to another person. In Colossians chapter 2, Colossae was another city not that far from Corinth. The Apostle Paul planted that church. He wrote them a letter. It's in the New Testament called Colossians. And here's what it says. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Listen, Jesus makes people complete, not marriage. That's why Paul says, he tells them that being single is preferable. And in fact, we're going to they're like, well, why is that? In our next time together, when we finish chapter seven, he's going to talk about what married couples should be doing and what singles should be doing. And, if, and he's like, look, and if you want to be single, that's fine. In fact, in some ways, he says it's preferable. And one of the reasons is, is because when you're single, you can put an extraordinary amount of time in your service to God. Because if you're single and you're a Christian, you, that should be a big focus of your life. You don't have the responsibility of a spouse or children. I mean, you can really just give yourself wholeheartedly in ministry and serving God and serving others. But he says, if you have a desire to be married, that's fine. You should find another person who loves Jesus and get married. Because it's not healthy to be burning with desire and have all of that temptation. Now he says, some have this gift. Now what he's talking about is a gift uh, that's mentioned in the New Testament called the gift of celibacy. Um, the spiritual gifts, we're gonna, when we get to chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're talking about spiritual gifts. But those who have that gift, now not everyone has it. In fact, it's a rarer gift. But those who have that gift don't really have a strong desire for physical intimacy. They don't really have a strong desire to get married. And those who do, he says, you should get married. And so when, years ago, and some of you know this, some of you don't, but before coming and starting Calvary 20 years ago, before that, I spent five years running a Bible college. And so uh, not just I was running the school, but I also taught a few classes every semester. And so I was teaching a class one evening, and a student came up to me after class, and she said that she wanted me to officiate her wedding because she had just gotten engaged. I congratulated her. I'm like, oh, that's great. And I said, hey, have you done? I said, man, I'd be honored to do your wedding, but have you done any premarital counseling. And she said, no, no, we want to get married quickly. And I said, hey, you know, okay, but why not premarital counseling isn't like six months. Like, why don't you just wait a few weeks, like three, four weeks, go through premarital counseling, invest in your relationship. And she says, no, we know this is of God. We started dating eight weeks ago. We know God put us together. And then she said this, she said, plus the Bible says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. 
And I, first, the first thing I thought was, I never thought I'd hear that verse quoted back to me. And um, now, I'm 47 years old, and I know you're saying, like, this guy doesn't look a day over 31. And a um, little too much. The appropriate response was a light chuckle. All right? So, now, I'm going to tell you what 24-year-old Bob said. So, feel free not to email me and be like, I wish you didn't say that. Yeah, me too. But I tried to reach 24-year-old Bob. He was not available for comment. So, uh, 47-year-old Bob is just going to tell you what 24-year-old Bob had to say about that situation. And 24-year-old Bob knew everything, by the way. So... He had a lot of issues that he's still working through. And so, so she says, you know, it's better to marry. We got, you know, we got together eight weeks ago. We don't want to wait. And, uh, and so, and, you know, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And I said, so you're rushing to get married because you're horny? And that's what I said. And, uh, and she was really taken back, as a few of you were right now. And, uh, and she's like, well, it's not just that. We, like, love each other and stuff. I, the end stuff has always been my favorite part of that sentence. We love each other and stuff. And, um, and I said, well, here's the thing. Here's what the Bible also says, that love is patient. We'll get to that in chapter 13. And, and, and the point is this, is that if you have desire, get married. But like, you don't have to rush into this. You still need to exercise wisdom uh, in making this decision. And we're going to talk about that in, in a second. And the point is this, if you want to be married, that's a wonderful desire. Just don't make it an ultimate desire, thinking that marriage is somehow going to complete you. You know why? Because Jesus is the one who completes us. And draw close to him, and when you get married, listen, you're going to be a whole person, marrying another whole person, and Jesus is going to bring the two of you together, and the Bible says that a cord of three strands is not quickly broken, and you are going to have something amazing together. Okay. Last section, and he's, he's going to make the comment that I was telling you about. Verse 10. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has... A husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be clean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to tell you, is that marriage is a lifetime commitment. Before I get into that, I want to answer something that comes up, and I'm amazed at how many books I read, and people, um, and this is like leaders, like they don't understand what's being said. When Paul says, hey, I'm saying this, not the Lord, he's not just sharing his personal opinion on the matter. Or when he says, hey, this isn't me talking, this is the Lord talking, that's not him saying, well, this really has weight, but if I say it's not the Lord but me, that's just an opinion. No. What you have to realize is, is when he says, um, I say, because he says both. In the beginning, he says, now to the married, I command, but not I, but the Lord. And then he says in verse 12, not to the rest, I, not the Lord say. 
What does he mean? Like one is just an opinion, I should take it seriously, and the other Jesus said, so I should really, that means a lot? No, what that means is when there is something that Jesus, a topic that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels, he will say, this isn't what I'm saying, this is what the Lord Jesus said. So when he's talking about divorce, Jesus spoke about that specifically. And so he says, well, this is what, not I'm saying this, this is the Lord saying it, this is a weighty topic, and this is what he had to say. And so he defers to the teaching of Jesus when there is an issue that Jesus did not speak about specifically. And there are lots of issues that Jesus did not speak about specifically, right? Should you have an iPhone or an Android? I don't know. Jesus didn't talk about it. So work it out. And so, but there are things where Paul says, look, in issues like this, Paul now refers to not just his apostolic authority, but to the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures. He says, this is what would work, what makes sense, what is godly in this situation. So Paul addresses what would happen if a person comes to know Jesus. So you have two people that don't believe who get married. One of them comes to know Jesus and the other is not a Christian. That was very common in Corinth and many times it's common today. And so that means, once again, two people are not Christians. One becomes a Christian after they get married. Paul in 2 Corinthians will talk about What if a believer and a non-believer want to get involved? And he's like, that's a no-go because it's a disaster nine out of nine times. And so, but this situation is two people who are not Christians get married, and then one of them over the process of time becomes a Christian. What do you do? And so Paul says, if you become a Christian and the other isn't, but the person who's not a Christian is willing to stay in the marriage, then stay. Because you might be the tool that God uses to reach that person. In fact, he says this, that this unbelieving spouse is sanctified or set apart, that they're going to experience blessing in their life simply because they're married to a believer. And the same thing is true with your kids because God's blessing your life because you're a Christian. Those that are in proximity around you are going to experience some of that blessing as well simply by the fact that they're near you. Uh, Now, there were those in Corinth who thought, no, 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 if you become a Christian and your your spouse isn't a Christian, you should just get divorced because it makes it easy and clean. And and he's like, no, because Jesus said something about divorce. So he's like, this isn't me saying it. This is the Lord Jesus talked about this topic in the Gospels. And so in Matthew 19, he says, uh, this is the question that Jesus has asked. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, that is a very specific question. It's not just, hey, you know, what, how do you feel about divorce? It's, can, can a person divorce away for any and every reason? Why? Because there was a particular school of thought that followed the teaching of a particular rabbi who believed that you could get divorced for any and every reason. There were basically two what they called houses, but basically two schools of thought. There was what was called the house of Hillel. Hillel was a very famous rabbi. He believed that you could divorce your spouse for any reason. In fact, in the writings of Hillel, he says that you can divorce your wife. Here's three reasons you can divorce your wife. He says, if you don't like her anymore, if she cooks your eggs the wrong way. And the third one is, if you, find, if, if you see someone who is more attractive than your spouse, and somehow that frustrates you that you're married to a woman that is less attractive than this other woman that you saw. And he says, you would just say this, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, hand her a certificate, and would you like a receipt with that? And that would be the end, drive through. And so then, now the Pharisees, these religious leaders, that was what they believed. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. Hillel on most topics was very conservative. 
His theology was very conservative. And Jesus, if you read the teachings of Hillel with the teachings of Jesus, Jesus seemed to side with Hillel on most, not all, but most topics. There was another famous rabbi at the, at the time. Now, these guys lived about 50 years before the time of Jesus. So that was Hillel. The other rabbi that was prominent at the time was a rabbi named Shammai. This guy was a real character. And one of his big things was that you had to tell the truth under any circumstances. And I think all of us would agree, right? That like honesty is the best policy. But I think that there are moments where we're not going to come out and try to insult someone because it's true. So like you go over somebody's house for dinner and what they make you is absolute garbage, right? That's happened over the course of your life. And what do you do? You were like, you know, you just find other things to compliment. So, and, and, and hey, how's the food? And you're like, wow, I'm so grateful that you took the time to make this. And thank you so much for inviting us over. You're a wonderful host, wonderful hostess. See, Shammai says that doesn't fly. Shammai has to say, this is dog food, right? You know, now I know that some people go over the top. They're like, oh, the dinner was so wonderful. Can I have the recipe? And you're like, yeah, because I'm going to burn it. And uh, Shammai's like, no, you got to tell absolute truth at all times. And so one of Shammai's antics that's written about is uh, he took some, some of his disciples to a wedding. And you go to a wedding, right? And you're complimenting the bride and groom. And you're like, you know, but he says, if the bride doesn't look beautiful you have to walk up to her and tell her she's ugly and uh like i mean this guy is like a total maniac i mean i I can only imagine this guy had no friends and so now um and and so and once again i mean i have officiated hundreds of wedding ceremonies i have never seen an ugly bride i have met many ugly wives but I have never seen an ugly bride. Every bride is stunning on her wedding day. And you might say, I don't believe in miracles. Go to a wedding. You might witness one take place. We serve a God of miracles. And sometimes on your wedding day, you're like, who in the world is this person? And, uh, you know, and that's, so anyway, I'm moving on. So, but anyway, so it's, so because of this, but I'll say this, but Shammai, he had a very conservative view on marriage, and that is the only reason a person could get divorced is because of adultery, which is where Jesus ends up landing. And so they end up asking him, so here's what they say a couple verses later, the the Pharisees say, they say to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, that is Jesus, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus has a very conservative view that it's like, this is a lifetime commitment that we're making. Now, I know this is strange, but the, the Greek word that's translated for divorce, it's used, there's a couple different words for divorce but in the Greek language, but um, it's spelled C-H-O-R-I-Z-O. Now, if you speak Spanish... That's pronounced chorizo. And uh, that is the Greek word for divorce is chorizo. So if you ever go to a deli in Israel and you ask the girl behind the counter, hey, can I have a pound of chorizo? She's like, chorizo, we're not even married. And uh, so, but either way, whether it's you're asking for sausage or you're asking for a divorce, chorizo is not a kosher word. And uh, now, because when two people get married, they are working, God is working 
to, for them to become one flesh. Now, I want you to realize what he says, that the only legitimate reason for divorce, he says, was sexual immorality. The second thing that he said is the reason why people want to end their marriages is because of hardness of heart. And this is why Paul brings up this other issue, and he's, uh, so he tells the Corinthians. He, he takes this teaching of Jesus and brings it into the context of, that the Corinthians were living in. He says, if the unbeliever, you became a Christian, if the unbeliever wants to stay, let them stay. Because you might be the person that God uses to see them and your kids come to know Jesus. But if you leave, you're going to lose the influence you have with your family that you have right now. And there's a powerful reason for that, and we're going to talk about that in our, in our next time together. But listen, marriage is the most important earthly decision that you're going to make in your life besides inviting Jesus to be your Lord. But that's why we can't go into marriage hastily. We've got to decide to be wise because there is so much pain on the other side of making a poor marriage choice. But when you choose well and you are a whole person and you find someone else who loves Jesus, who is a whole person, and you guys come together in a marriage relationship, listen, you will think it is, I mean, is it legal to have this much joy in your life? C.S. Lewis, um, some of us know C.S. Lewis because he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, but most of C.S. Lewis's books are on different aspects of the Christian life. And his book, Mere Christianity, was required reading when I was in college getting my theology degree. But he wrote a book called The Four Loves that I read after college. And he describes in the book the four types of human love. He talks about um, affection, friendship. He talks about erotic love. And then he talks about the love of God. And in the first part of the book, he says this. He says, if I were to paint a picture of erotic love, it would be two people looking at each other. But if we drew a picture of friendship, it would be two people standing next to each other looking at something else. To become one flesh, you cannot spend your entire marriage looking at each other to be the one who's going to meet all of your needs. And here's why. Because they can't. I can't meet all of my wife's needs and my wife cannot meet all of my needs. But see, that's not what marriage was designed to do. When you come to the realization, and this is a freeing truth, that God is the only one who can meet all of my needs. When I take all of my expectations off of my spouse to be my everything, something wonderful happens. Instead of looking to each other for everything, now we stand side by side as best friends looking at Jesus, the one who can meet all of our needs. And that's why I realize, and we come to this realization, that God's purpose for bringing this amazing other person into my life and bringing your spouse into your life is not that they're going to meet all of your needs. It's that they are going to become your best friend and your covenant partner. And you will lead each other to Jesus, the one who meets all of your needs. And you will take those steps together. And the closer that you get to the Lord Jesus, the closer that you will get to each other and you become one flesh. And my friends, that's where all the joy is found. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that truth, that promise, that you want to do a work that is exceedingly abundantly above in our marriages. You want to do that work in us as single adults that we can be whole despite whatever relationship we have if we have a relationship with you.
And so I pray, God, that this would be a turning point for us, that we might experience a wholeness and healing that comes from knowing your son. And from there, that we would experience joy and all the other relationships that this life that you've given us has to offer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.